Greetings. Glad you're here. This is the premiere episode of the Alegomai. As you may infer from the title, this podcast is about dialogue. My intention is to foster conversations about that which is ultimate concern. To use the phrase of Paul Tillich, I hope that you will dialogue with me, for it is through dialogue that identity is expressed as Charles Taylor teaches us, and I rather think this to be true. Allow me to invite you into a conversation, even if the conversation is between myself and I. Now when persons meet in polite society, introductions are in order, and so allow me to bypass that and dive right into the subject. And the subject of this first episode, that is at the center of faith, and it is the subject or to use the traditional term doctrine or teaching that functions as a way uh, to see and of course to read scripture. Now I ground this not on my own subjective understanding for that would be like building a house on sinking sand but on the twin pillars of scripture and tradition and what I mean by tradition is the history of interpreting scripture. This teaching is one that is actually less controversial than it seems. The Greek word, because everything sounds better in Greek or Latin, is apokatastasis, or doctrine of universal restoration or redemption. According to this teaching, yes, I will deal with the Fifth Ecumenical Council, the ultimate end of all creation is reconciliation with or to God. That in the end of the age, There is no Greek concept of infinity as we in the West actually understand it. That in the end of the age, God shall reclaim every creature. And that Hades, I choose not to use the word hell on purpose because the word has no relation to the concept of the afterlife in Judaism or Christianity. In the end, Hades shall be emptied of its captives. And by this is meant all so that even the most vile of souls and, at last, the devil and his angels, according to this doctrine, shall be redeemed. Before I continue, I would like to tell you a story, or rather, a conversation. This conversation is fictional, but I think it sets the stage. The reason why I chose to begin with this subject, teaching. This conversation was penned by one of the greatest authors the 19th century. I'm speaking of the Russian author Fyodor Mihailovich Dostoevsky. In his book, Brothers Karamazov, which I highly recommend, there's a dialogue between two brothers, Ivan and Alyosha, affectionate name for Alex. Ivan is the older, Alyosha the youngest, who has entered a convent to be a monk. Ivan is more of a cynic than an atheist, actually, and their conversation deals with the subject or of theodicy, which is the justice of God, and of course its relation to salvation. Ivan describes in horrific detail stories of children tortured by their parents, soldiers slaying babies with their bayonets, all to illustrate the very real presence of evil. And so when it comes to salvation, he rejects the notion 
that God, or rather the church, has uh, taught about salvation. He summarizes that if the price of salvation of all humanity was the suffering and death of one innocent soul, then to him it is not worth it. So he tells Elisha that he returns his ticket. It was this conversation, this dialogue, that began to work within me to focus on salvation and to read and meditate upon the teachings of certain church fathers. I must state before continuing that the doctrine of uh, Apocatastasis does not do away with Hades, but rather sees Hades as a temporary state, a place or state of purification where God will purge the soul of all darkness in order to bring it into the glorious light of his kingdom. Now let us begin, and it is proper to begin with Scripture. We begin with the earliest writings in the New Testament, those of the Apostle Paul, probably writing from about 50 to 66 CE. Now if you have time to read the entire Pauline corpus, you will have noticed that something is missing, namely any teaching about Gehenna in Judaism or Hades in Greek understanding. Now since Paul, by education, was a Pharisee, he would have surely known about both, and yet there is no reference to it, not even one. Let me repeat that again. Nowhere in the letters of Paul, who wrote more than any other apostle combined, do we have any teaching about Hades, nor about everlasting punishment. And we have the testimony of the apostle himself from 2 Corinthians 12. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. Now I hear an interjection here. Well, does not Paul speak of judgment? Of course he does, and numerous times. But judgment is not the same as everlasting punishment. By the same token, the nation of Israel was judged and sentenced to exile, but it was not infinite. Now, if the greatest apostle received the teaching unlike any other in the New Testament, and yet does not mention eternal damnation of the reprobate, why would he leave it out? I offer to you the reason. Because his focus was on salvation, not condemnation. From his first letter to the church in Thessalonica, the final most intimate letter written to Timothy shortly before he testified of his faith with his life, Paul again and again speaks of salvation and extends this to all of creation. In 1 Timothy 2, we read this, God our Savior who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. Notice the little words, everyone and all. Not the faithful, not those who believe, but all, every person. Or look at Ephesians 1, verses 9-10. to 10. With all wisdom and insight he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, 
things in heaven and things on earth. In Titus 2.11, we have this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. And of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Colossians 1.19.20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Over and over again, the apostle writes of a universal reconciliation that shall take place so that every created being, and Genesis 1 tells us that God created ex nihilo, that is out of nothing, and indeed this must be the case for the simple reason that salvation is a zero-sum game. Paul expresses this in 1 Corinthians 15, which deals precisely with the resurrection of the dead. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. And that would be sufficient. For this removes any hint of doubt as to what he is saying. This phrase means no remainders. This phrase means that no unfortunate creature, no matter how vile, how dark its thoughts and deeds, how much blood it has upon his hands, can be left outside of the gates of paradise. It may take lifetimes for God to wear down the self-centeredness of a soul, but bit by bit it shall be emptied of its selfishness. So the end result of it will be the love of God shall prevail and every soul shall ascend to enjoy the presence of God for all time. Let me here stop to address an issue of justice. If every one will be saved eventually, will not this invalidate any sense of justice? Shall the cry of the martyrs in Revelation 6 go unheeded? Will not the countless upon countless oppressed throughout time immemorial be denied even by God the justice that is their due? Let me again state that Scripture cannot go against Scripture, just as there can be no division within the Godhead. God is the God of justice and love, and these are but two sides of the same coin. For God shall judge. This is in the oldest creed of the church. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. There can be no mistake about this. God is just. Scripture, however, informs us that God's justice is restorative. See Amos 5.24, Isaiah 16.5.32.1. And not merely punitive. And certainly we must distinguish between justice and vengeance. The judgment of God is constructive, not destructive. The judgment of God builds up and restores. Here we have the symmetry between love and justice, for love builds up. 
The character of God, so far as we're able to deduce, is just, but Scripture does not tell us that God is justice. Rather, his justice is relational, as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel pointed out. Justice is not an abstract principle, but at the very heart of God, so that injustice is wrong because it defaces the image of God in every human being. It is here that we see the link between justice and love so vividly. For God is love. The judgment of God is temporary, but his love, his hesed, endures forever. And we know of the way of love from 1 Corinthians 13, that love that is agape, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But what of the passion? In the events of the passion, we have the summary of Barth, that the judge is judged. But more will be said of this in later episodes. Suffice now to say that for God to condemn a soul to everlasting torment would null and void his justice. For who would claim that God is just if he sentences a soul to suffer horribly without end for the slightest of wrong? Would there be no outcry if a judge sentences a man to ten lifetimes in prison without parole for jaywalking? Would that judgment be proportional to the offense? Would it not be a perversion of justice rather than enacting of it? But what of those passages that deal with Hades? Certainly Jesus mentions Gehenna. Actually, outside of James, he's the only person to use this word in the New Testament. Gehenna is Gehinon, that is the Valley of Hinnon, which was outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Originally, it was a place where sacrifices were offered to other gods, including uh, Moloch, so at times even human sacrifice. King Josiah stopped this by defiling the place, that is, he made it into a garbage dump as recorded in 2 Kings 23. So that is what Gehenna became, the garbage heap of Jerusalem. All of the sewage and refuse was carried out of the city and dumped there. So it was a place crawling with worms and maggots as the garbage decomposed. So you can imagine the stench. Also the refuse was lit on occasion, hence the image of a consuming fire. So again, what we have are descriptions, imagery that Jesus used, but it is not doctrine. This cannot be accepted as a teaching. For if the disciples had received doctrine, any kind of doctrine from Jesus, any kind of teaching about everlasting torment and exclusion, you would think they would have recorded it. After all, it is very, very important because it relates to our fate, to eternity. But here again, we have no such teaching. Nor does the book of Acts, for that matter, a link between the Pauline epistles and the Gospels, have any reference to everlasting punishment or torment. Now we must ask where did Jesus get his idea of Gehenna? Most likely the Talmud. To Judaism, the Talmud is about as important as the Bible because, well, it is the Oral Bible. What do I mean by Oral Bible? Let me explain. A central belief in Judaism is that Moses received the written Torah, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, from God on Mount Sinai. But he also received an Oral Torah, that is a teaching, and the Talmud is this oral teaching that was finally written down. There are two parts to the Talmud, the Mishnah and the Gomorrah. The Mishnah is the oral tradition of Israel passed down from Moses until the rabbis in the second century. The Gomorrah is the discussion of the rabbis about the first part. These often contain diverse and differing views on the meanings of passages in the Jewish Bible, that is the Old Testament. 
And so Jesus, being a learned rabbi, and yes, he was an educated man, to say otherwise is offensive, Jesus, being a learned rabbi, he would have been very familiar with the various views on the subject of salvation, and hence their use in his parables. And he used this word, and not the word Sheol, which is found in the Old Testament as the realm or abode of the dead. According to the Talmud, Gehenna was created by God as a place of torment for those who did not live in accordance with the Torah, that is, the laws or ways of God. What kind of transgressions warranted a visit to Gehenna? Adultery, pride, idolatry, anger, wrath, as well as anyone who spoke ill of a rabbinic scholar, neatly enough. If such a transgression against the laws of God was committed, repentance was urged. In fact, this was the focus, for the rabbis believed that repentance was possible even at the very gates of Gehenna. And here we come to the crucial point. The rabbis did not believe that souls would be eternally condemned to Gehenna. The section of the Talmud concerning the, Shab the Sabbath states that the punishment of the wicked in Gehenna is 12 months, while other texts that is the opinion of other right, uh, rabbis, say that time frame could be anywhere from 3 to 12 months. There were certain rabbis that felt that there were transgressions that warranted eternal damnation. These offenses or transgressions included heresy, public shaming someone, committing adultery with a married woman, and rejecting the Torah. But there was always a door left open to repentance. Now, if Jesus was familiar with these teachings and were the basis for his own, we have evidence in the Gospels that he was more lenient than the Pharisees, who represented this strand of Judaism. So we can see that Jesus did never meant, in fact, has never expressly said that Gehenna was of infinite duration. Added to this is also the difficulty because of definition, for the word infinity was not understood in the same way in the ancient world. In fact, there are several passages in the Gospels that contain the words of Jesus that match kind of Greek understanding of Tartarus, that is a kind of prison, about people being thrown into this place or shut out into it. But again, there's not reference of duration. So far, we have covered the epistles and the gospels. The third part is the writings of the church fathers. These men who wrote in the third and fourth centuries before and soon after Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And I will focus on one person, um, who was an advocate of universal reconciliation, the Church Father Oregon. It must be pointed out, before I go any further, that Oregon holds a very high place in the history of the Church and in theology. His method of reasoning scripture, that of the allegorical, was so influential that it became the way to read scripture until the Reformation. That is more than 1300 years. In his writing, First Principles, which is thought to have been written when he was about 30 and incredibly had never made changes to it, he wrote regarding human existence in the following way. For the end is always like the beginning and therefore as there is one end to all things, so ought we to understand that there was one beginning and as there is one end to many things, so there spring from one beginning many differences and varieties, which again are recalled to one end, which is like unto the beginning. What Oregon here alludes to is the link between Genesis and Revelation. In Genesis, humanity is created by God in his image to enjoy him forever, as the Heidelberg Catechism states. And so the end, the telos, is like the beginning, 
when all souls shall be united to God, the one spring of all creation. But of sin and judgment, these are not overlooked by Oregon. Instead, he talks about salvation as judgment, that our actions matter more than we would think. For God does not take transgression lightly. In fact, what Oregon wrote of judgment is that it will be very personal. Instead of the imagery uh, of the some kind of great cauldron where souls are thrown into tortured endlessly, Oregon describes judgment as meted out on a personal basis, which, I must say, is much more terrifying. To the question of how God will bring the restoration of every soul to pass, he says, and this result must be understood as being brought about not suddenly but slowly and gradually, seeing that the process of amendment and correction will take place imperceptibly in the individual instances during the lapse of countless and unmeasured ages, some outstripping others and tending by swifter course towards perfection, while others again follow close at hand, and some again a long way behind, and thus, through the numerous and uncounted orders of progressive beings who are being reconciled to God from a state of enmity, the last enemy is finally reached, who is called death, so that he also may be destroyed and no longer be an end. Oregon's understanding of universal reconciliation was such that even the devil and his angels will be reconciled to God. And here we come to the Fifth Ecumenical Council held in 533 CE in Constantinople. Notice that it is a little after the death of Oregon, who died about 254. Also, it was convened not by the Pope, nor by various bishops, but by the Emperor Justinian. In fact, the Pope did not attend at all. Yes, you heard it right, the Pope did not attend, did not convene or presided over the Fifth Ecumenical Council. This was a controversial council, to say the least, because certain Western churches only accepted it after the Pope begrudgingly accepted it. The churches in Africa, where Augustine lived and served, accepted it only after military intervention. One gets the feeling that it was not a very popular council. To be clear, there's controversy also about the council and the one that happened nine years after it. Now, the reason for the Fifth Ecumenical Council was to deal with the heresy of Nestorius, that is the Nestorian controversy, or apostasy, and not Oregon, who had been dead more than 300 years. The letters of correspondence about the council that are preserved for us make no mention of Oregon or Oregonism. The official record of the council has no mention of the anathemas, that is, the curses against Oregon. And just as a side note, when the Great Schism of 1054 happened, that is the official split between Eastern and Western Christianity, the Pope's delegates went into Hagia Sophia and, after being shunned, decreed that the Patriarch of Constantinople was anathema in the middle of the Mass. In response, the papal delegates had anathema pronounced upon them. Also, it is important to note this. Oregon was never condemned as a heretic, like Marcion or Abion or Bishop Arius or Theodotus of Byzantium. His writing are still read, debated and accepted as orthodox, and its influence is still very much present. As well as Oregon, there were the Cappadocian Fathers that leaned heavily on the side of universal reconciliation, figures like Gregory Nazianzum and Basil. Further east, 
There are the writings of St. Isaac the Syrian. There can be an entire episode devoted just to the history of how his writings were preserved. Throughout history, there have been many, uh, such as uh, the Anabaptists, who believed in the universal reconciliation. And, of course, this was the dominant thought of 18th uh, and 19th century um, Christianity in the New Close to our time, we have uh, the works of Leo Tolstoy, of uh, the aforementioned Fyodor Dostoevsky, and Sergei Bulgakov, to name but a few. Now, in the final point, let me add that the teaching of an infinite torture of human souls is really not compatible with the view of Jesus, who, as Paul writes, is the visible image of God, and fully God and fully man, as the Nicene Creed. And we see in the Gospels that each time Jesus interacts with a sinner who would be sentenced to Gehenna, according to the rabbis, he does not practice judgment, but compassion, and emphasizes forgiveness and repentance. So why would Jesus emphasize these during his earthly ministry to then go against himself and in the world to come to deny and bar someone from paradise, but not only to bar them, but to torture that person without end? Allow me to read a summary from David Bentley Hart and his book, That All Shall Be Saved. He says this, my own view in the end is that it is absurd to treat any of the New Testaments as catalogical language as containing even in new some sort of exact dogmatic definition of the literal conditions of the world. I am quite certain that while Christ employed all sorts of imagery regarding final judgment and spoke of a discrimination between the righteous and the wicked and spoke also of the dire consequences for the latter of their actions in this life, not of it should be received as anything other than an intentional heterogeneous phantasmagory meant as much to disorient as to instruct. I am quite sure that had Jesus wished to impart a precise and literal picture of the age to come, he could have done so. But, in fact, the more closely one looks at the wild melange of images he employed, the more the picture dissolves into evocation, atmosphere, and poetry. Ah, but what a free will! Did not God create us to be free and in this freedom is the possibility of rejecting the love of God? The short answer is no. First, the choice cannot be made by any rational being. For who, being in their sound mind, would choose endless pain and misery? Would this choice be made in a right state of mind? Would it not the decision to deny the invitation of God be the very evidence of an abnormal mind? Someone who has taken leave of their senses? Second, the idea that my free will is equal to the love of God is to lessen the love of God. To be sure, a human being can say no to God, but not forever. For this would mean that my no is equal to God's yes for me, for the world, and this would invalidate the events of the passion. Another idea or objection is that God will respect the decision of a soul to reject him. But this again lessens the character of God. For what parent would accept the choice of their child who would willingly choose self-annihilation would that parent not cling to that person to that child would they not do everything in their power turn them away from destruction lastly there is the presence of evil as understood by paul and the tradition of the church both in the east and the west and is the understanding of evil as privatio bono that is the absence of good 
And yes, I use Latin terms at times because while the official language of the church in the West until Vatican II, which is 1962, was Latin. Now, if evil is an absence, a shadow, a lack, then human beings, indeed all rational beings, cannot will to choose evil, for evil is no thing. Evil does not, cannot exist in se, that is, in itself, because that would mean that God is the originator of evil. And you can exclude uh, passages like Isaiah 45, 7, because the translation there, even according to the King James, is calamity and not evil. If evil is nothing, it has no place in God's good creation. If evil was a part of God's creation, it would be part of the new creation, recorded in Revelation 21. Evil shall be overcome by the goodness of God in the same way that light overcomes darkness. The great crescendo of scripture is one of reconciliation, of God coming to live here on earth. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, that is humanity. To be sure, there is judgment. Scripture is very clear about that. But it is not infinite, not unjust, but warranted. For as our Lord says in Mark 9.49, everyone shall be salted with fire. Seen in this way, Gehenna, hell, is a place of purification. So that when all the imperfections and pollutants that the soul acquired in this life will be removed, the unblemished soul shall ascend to paradise to enjoy God. Now let us suppose that I am wrong, and in error here, and God will decree that the reprobate exist, exit creation to an everlasting torture and suffering unimaginable. Would not that righteous contest this decree? <clears throat> would not the righteous contest this decree? Did not Abraham stand before God and contend with him for the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah? Did not Moses contend for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai after the events of the Apis Bowl? Did not the prophets of old contend over and over again with God over his judgment? Why did Paul write, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. If this curse was infinite in duration. And lastly, and this is the concluding part I will read from the great Scott and his preach uh, in his sermon entitled love thy neighbor you really want to understand uh, atonement then his sermon entitled justice is a sublime masterpiece of composition but allow me to read a longer section that I think is a summary this is what George MacDonald wrote St. Paul would be wretched before the throne of God if he thought there was one man beyond the pale of his mercy, and that as much for God's glory as for the man's sake. And what shall we say of the man, Christ Jesus, who that loves his brother would not, upheld by the love of Christ, and with a dim hope that in the far-off time there might be some help for him, arise from the company of the blessed and walk down into the dismal regions of despair, to sit with the last, the only unredeemed, the Judas of his race, and be himself more blessed in the pains of hell than in all the glories of heaven, who, in the midst of the golden harps and the white wings, knowing that one of his kind, one miserable brother in the old world time, when men were taught to love their neighbor as themselves, 
was howling unheeded far below in the vaults of the creation who i say would not feel that he must arise that he had no choice that awful as it was he must gird his loins and go down into the smoke and the darkness and the fire traveling the weary and fearful road into the far country to find his brother and so that is the question that i pose to you in the dialogue i hope you will begin for even if god were to pronounce judgment his saints would do that which mr macdonald preached they would leave the blessed company of heaven and sit there in the pains of hell itself to find his brother thank you for listening and god bless